Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Like the video said, my name is Elijah Daly. And when we were planning that video a month or two ago, it, I didn't think it would also be the week that I happened to be preaching, but here I am. So uh, I haven't changed shirts. Well, I mean, I have, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> but I'm grateful to be with you and grateful that we get to pass those once more. And I'm also grateful to be in this series. It's been a good series. Uh, hopefully good for you as we begin to, to really wrestle with these questions. These are good questions, honest questions, kingdom questions. And our goal with this series is really not to be right, but to see that like God really has given us quite a few direct, clear answers to some of these things. But it's also to acknowledge that even where he hasn't given us clarity, he's given us room for trust because he's good, because he's gracious, because he's loving. And that he really does want us to ask these sorts of things. He's not afraid of them. He's not too big. He's not you know, running out of time to be able to, to address them. He can address both the greatest things in human history and also the the smallest irritations to our souls. And he wants every part of those to be brought before him. No question is stupid when it comes to God because he gets to use it in every way he wants. And I've asked a stupid question here and there. You know what I mean? So I know. In fact, if you guys remember a couple of weeks ago, Mark was talking about being in Bible college and bringing some of those, you know, arguments back to the dorm and just debating about those things, that is an absolute fact. That is what happens. All the Bible nerds get together, we go back to the dorms and we argue about things that most people don't care about. And I always had this question that I, was all, that I would always ask because I knew, like I knew this was gonna like cause a ruckus. You know what I mean? Like I knew this was gonna stir some people up. And so we'd go back to the rooms and we'd all gather together and we'd all just debate and argue and have a great time. Well, there was this one time in particular where this guy was coming onto our campus. He was a big deal. You probably never heard his name before, Craig Evans. But in terms of like the biblical world, this was a big name. This was a scholar, you know, a giant. And here he comes onto our campus because he's going to talk to us about these different topics, these different things that he's experienced. And he has like these different things, but the whole time, uh, if you guys know Spencer Hahn, he's our new discipleship minister. Him and I went to school together. And the whole time, he's trying to get me to ask him the question. He's like, come on, dude, ask him, ask him. I'm like, no, dude, it's one thing to like come and bring the, the, the ruckus back to your dorm. You know what I mean? But I'm not trying to like draw attention to myself in front of the whole audience as I ask this, this question, you know? But the whole week, he just bugs me about it. Well, even the Q&A comes, you know, kids start going up and they ask Dr. Evans questions and, and you know, he answers them. And he's like, dude, come on, this is your chance. This is it, do it. And I'm like, no, I'm not gonna do it. Well, finally, crowd disperses, you know, it's coming to the end of this, this week where this, this giant, this intellectual giant is with us, you know, and, uh, and we're walking out, it's me, Spencer, and one of our professors, and we're talking, and everyone's mostly gone, and there's Dr. Evans by himself walking out of the chapel, and Spencer's like, this is it, man, this is your last chance, you have to do it, and I was like, okay, I'll do it, and so I walk, and I say, Dr. Evans, and he stops, and I walk over, I say, I got a question for you. And I ask him the question. And he stops for a moment. And he's just like, I'm like, okay, he's considering this. He's thinking about it. And he looks at me and he says, that is the stupidest question I have ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Now, come to find out, Spencer had run into him in the bathroom. And he said, hey, I'm going to get my friend to ask you this question. And when he does, I want you to say, that is the stupidest question I have ever heard. (laughs) 
So I have asked a stupid question here or there, but the truth is our church is not afraid of those questions and neither is God. He wants to hear him, all of them, because they truly do shape us, they form us. Now I know what you're thinking, but what did you ask him? Well, here's the deal, I can't tell you, all right? Because if I tell you, you're gonna be thinking about it the whole time. So here's what I will tell you though. Here's what I will. I, when I'm not preaching on a Sunday morning, I'm going to be in the cafe during second hour and just, I'm gonna be here all day anyways, but during second hour in particular, before, after, all of that. Come ask me what the question was and any other question you might have. Because here's the truth. I love talking about these things. I love it. And I don't think that there are stupid questions when I know that they're forming us all the way. All the, I'll, I'll never tell you what Dr. Evans told me, okay? He's a very nice man, by the way. He's, he's good. But here's the truth. We want to help you tackle some of these things. So the second thing is in two weeks when we conclude this series... We're actually gonna have a time where, where we're gonna have a panel discussion of some of the questions that you ask. So if you guys wanna go ahead and put that, that number on the screen. If you wanna take a picture of that number, if you want to um, text any questions you have right now, maybe during the message as you're reacting or thinking about things that, that come up during, maybe it's just during your Bible study time during the week or a question a friend has asked you before, um, whatever the case may be, uh, we want to have some of those. We're not gonna be able to tackle all of them probably, but we're gonna try to make our way through as much as possible. Um, but the hope is that, again, these things can really be shaping us. Now, the other thing is, this is anonymous, okay? So we won't know it's you. If you wanna say something mean, you can. We're gonna throw that one away and we won't even know it's you. But the other thing is, if you wanna ask a question that you just feel a little bit vulnerable about, vulnerable about like, that's okay. That's a safe place to do that. Uh, we really wanna help, allow this to be a helpful thing for our church. So, Send in those questions. We'll be happy to discuss them together. But as for today, we're talking about the church, asking questions about the church. And scripture, it tells us an awful lot about the church. I wanna just read through a couple of passages. So hang with me as we do. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 says this. You are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 1 Corinthians 3.17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And the last one, which is probably one of my favorite texts of all time because of the way in which it describes what we are looking toward in eternity, it says this in Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, the church, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people 
and God himself will be with them as their God. Man, do you see how amazing the church is? The incredible, beautiful images that it uses to talk about God's church. This is the household of God, the temple where he dwells, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, a bride who is beautifully dressed, no wrinkles, no spots, no blemishes, and she comes before her groom, God. The church is the bride of Christ, and you must not forget that. The church is not a building, just as the video said. You did not come to church today. You brought the church into this place. Today, we bring the bride before its groom in a significant and amazing way because as one unified voice, we speak to him and he speaks to us. Something amazing is happening in this place right now as we speak. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's pain that happens in the body. There's wounding, there's hurt. And it doesn't come from outside, it comes from within. From those who are supposed to be a part of it. And it wounds us. So how is it possible that scripture can claim that this bride is clean when we've experienced its dirt? We've seen the wrinkles, the headlines of pastors who cross lines. Citizens of heaven who act more like residents of hell. People who claim that Jesus is the resurrected king, but they still act like he's in the grave, like he's not actually seeing what in fact is going on. What happens when the community that was supposed to be a taste of holiness ends up being a poison against it? You see, part of the question that we're really trying to answer here is, do I really need to be associated with the church? Because I've been hurt. That's our topic. And today what we're gonna do is use Galatians 2. To look at it. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians 2. Because I believe it gives us a lot of these dimensions in which we can begin to try to answer these types of questions. We are going to look at the church and its healing, the church and its hurt, and the church and its hope. Its healing, its hurt, and its hope. So let's look at the church and its healing. The church and its healing. It picks up in Galatians 2, verse 11. It says this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, Cephas is the apostle Simon Peter. We actually see this in John 1.42. Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, he's bringing Simon Peter to Jesus. And look what, look what it says in, in John 1.42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas was from the Aramaic term for rock, and Peter is from the Greek term for rock. Now, the only reason I point all of this out is because this is really important for you to know. This is the apostle Simon Peter. This is somebody who is not just one of the 12 disciples, one of the apostles, Jesus' closest friends. This was probably one of the most influential people in the church at this time. And so it is a pretty stunning thing that Paul, in front of everybody, goes to this leader and he calls him out in front of the entire group of people. 
But when you understand the context, you see exactly why this might be happening. Now, here's the deal. I want to answer this question, but I also want to teach through this text a little bit. I really want you to understand the dynamic of the relationships going on. So I want you to bear with me. So here is the drama, okay? Peter, Paul, Jesus, they didn't see Christianity as something separate from Judaism. They saw it as the fulfillment of Judaism, So imagine you are Jewish. You have been doing Jewish things all your life. You have holidays. You have religious traditions. You have dietary restrictions, family traditions. Every part of your life was an outward expression of your your Judaism. It was a part of your identity. And every part of it was changing because of Jesus. The dietary restrictions, the holidays, the family and religious traditions, it was all changing, which really meant your identity was changing. Now, just by a show of hands, how many of you guys have Christmas traditions? Raise your hand if you have Christmas traditions you celebrate. Yeah, of course. We all pretty much do, right? We all do. Whether it's watching Elf or Home Alone or going to church on Christmas Eve or eating a specific type of meal, right? We all have something. Now, imagine dad comes home one day and he's like, guys, this year, we're going to change it up a little bit. We're going to change some of our Christmas traditions. And you're like, okay, like you may be a little bit nervous, uncomfortable, you know, like, what do you got in mind, dad? Like, are we not going to watch Christmas vacation this year? Like, are we going to eat steak instead of ham? Like, what do you have in mind? He's like, actually, we're going to celebrate Hanukkah. Yeah, we're not going to celebrate Christmas at all. We're going to light the menorah, spin the dreidel a little bit. We're going to celebrate the Maccabean revolt over the Greek empire, you know, and the victory, miraculous things that they did there. And you're like, what? That would fundamentally change everything about what was happening, right? You're not talking about Jesus. You're not talking about Santa. You're not talking about anything that you had your entire life. And this is how most people felt. This is how most Jews felt. Things were changing and they were good, but they were hard. It was a left turn. It was a hard left turn. They could eat foods that they had never could before. They didn't have to go to the temple to offer sacrifices like they had done their entire life because Jesus said, I am the last and final sacrifice that covers everything once and for all. And they could associate with Gentiles, which is probably pretty much everyone in this room. They were no longer bound to this sort of purity and separation from all the nations around them. Like they could have fellowship with people regardless of their ethnicity or social status or whatever the case may be. This was hard. This was not easy. You see, for many, they liked their traditions. They liked their identity these are the chosen people of God. These are the, these are the ones who God spoke to. He gave their, his, his law to, their moral ethics. He gave them these specific things that made them specifically Jewish. He chose them, not Gentiles. They had superiority because of who they were. And more in particular, they could amplify that superiority by embodying those things over and over again. And this is really the problem of religious people in general, the self-righteous type. You see, once you identify a value in your community, if you can amplify your ability to live out that value, it gives you a sense of superiority that allows you to look down on everybody else. And this is how the Jewish people felt in many ways. And Peter comes to Antioch where Paul has already been preaching this new message of the gospel this message of freedom from sin and death into holiness and life, and it's changing the entire fabric of how they do life together. Like Gentiles are invited in now. And Peter comes with some of the boys from Jerusalem, and they go and they have dinner together. And Peter, 
because of the social pressure of those around him, he ignores them, snubs them, doesn't look at the Gentiles, doesn't talk to them. He sits at the cool table and he essentially practices a sort of racism toward Gentiles. Paul will have none of it. So he confronts Peter right then and there to his face because for Peter to act in this way, it is to compromise the very gospel that Paul had been preaching, that Peter himself believed, that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, every single person, no matter who you are, from the greatest to the least of these, to the most perfect to the most broken, are allowed into this kingdom when they believe in King Jesus. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman. All are equal, and they are free in God's kingdom. And what did we just learn? The kingdom is here, but... Notice, what you see in these passages, in these texts, is the church and its healing. You see, part of what it means to be a part of the church, the kingdom of God, this beautiful bride, is that we have these hard conversations if they are going to bring healing. Peter needed to be corrected. He needed to be talked to. And Paul was willing to have hard conversations. And so here's the truth. Some of us in this room have experienced hurt from a church, but it, was probably, it could have been more like a surgery than an attack. It actually could have been one that was supposed to heal the wound, not cause one. And so at some level, you do actually have to take a step back and start to ask this question, like, did I experience pain because I actually needed to be corrected? I needed to be called out. Was I in the wrong? There was no doubt pain there, but was it to heal or was it to hurt? Because the church is meant to provide space for this type of healing. The church is meant to provide conversation for growth and change. I think we can all agree that the types of community and friends and family that we want are those who can be honest with us, those who can see our lives headed in the wrong direction and putting us, hopefully helping us get right on the back on the right direction. The church is meant to bring healing. But that's just one half of the story, isn't it? Because the truth is, the church needed healing because there was somebody who didn't just send out there, out in the world, but they brought the hurt into the church. They caused hurt inside. The church inflicted itself. Let's look at the church and its hurt. The church and its hurt, which picks up in verse 12. It says, before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, speaking about Peter. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, have you ever been in a church where you just felt judged? All these people, all these religious people, and you just feel like they're looking at you. Maybe because of the way you look or you dress or you act. In some level, you just experience this insecurity. And that's really what's happening here. Imagine you are hearing the gospel for the first time. You're a Gentile. You have heard of this Jewish religion. You have heard of this God-man Jesus who is the king of the universe. He's getting rid of sin and death and he's restoring it with life and peace and it's the fulfillment of this Jewish religion. But it's not just for Jewish people anymore. It's for Jesus people. And your life is changed and you get invited to this big dinner party where everyone is celebrating this fact and you go up to someone and you start to talk to them and they don't even look at you. And you're kind of hurt by that, but maybe it's just that guy, you know? So you go, you go around, you start to talk to people, but nobody's really connecting with you. And then you see Peter. And you're like, oh man, I've heard about Peter. And I've heard stories about, 
about Peter, how he advances God's kingdom, how he's endured ridicule and scorn. Man, I'm going to talk to this guy. And you head to him, and you talk to him, you say hello, and he doesn't even look at you. And you're like, Peter? Really? This is the guy. This is the guy who advances God's kingdom. This is the guy who has endured persecution. This is the guy who is supposed to be the height of spiritual maturity, but he falls back into these old habits and in doing so actually poisons everyone else around him. My goodness, we could spend some time here, couldn't we? A spiritual leader who has compromised their position and notice how it impacts the whole group. Even Barnabas, that son of encouragement, becomes a source of embarrassment. This is a big deal. What makes it hard is they probably had good intentions. Like they probably were just being faithful to how they were raised their whole life, of what they understood a path to righteousness, what what it looked like. Paul here doesn't tell us how they justified how they mistreated the Gentiles, but we assume they must have because that's what we all do. We all find ways to dress up our behavior in goodness. Right? Like it's not gossip, it's concern. It's not virtue signaling, it's just bringing awareness. It's not judgment, it's love. You see, sin always tries to hide behind the beautiful. And the truth is, some of the, most, some of the greatest monstrosities in history wear the mask of virtue. Freedom, rights, justice, love, at whatever cost it takes. And this is why Paul must respond, and he must respond immediately. Listen to what he says. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jew? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Again, we have this religious crowd and those who have been on the outside of this religious crowd who are coming in, and I hope you see how appropriate this text truly is to our question. It would be like a step-parent who comes into the family and there's this suspicion from the kids, from the relatives, like, who is this person? And they impose these expectations on this person that are unfair. And they're going to adopt all the things that the family did before. But the truth is, this is a new family. And Paul's like, hey, you actually, you already lived like a Gentile. You already lived like the law doesn't matter because of what Christ has done. And so you need to actually treat these people like brothers and sisters. Why would you try to hold them to a law that you yourself couldn't be held to? It's hypocrisy. I bet you've heard that before. (laughs) One of the most fundamental ways people experience the hurt of the church is hypocrisy. You act one way when you're in the building and you go home and it is completely different. You act one way in the gathering, but then you go to work and it's totally different. But this hypocrisy, it's even worse because it's not just in the building and outside of it. It's just in the building. From one service to the next, a new mask comes on depending on who you are around. And the question that people experience, that they have when they experience these types of things is like, this is the church? This is, this is the bride? How? What's the point? Is this stuff even real? Like, do they even believe this whole Jesus thing? This is supposed to be God's beautiful bride? Now, I'll be honest with you. When we were talking through some of these topics of what this series would include, and this one came up, I said, I want that one. I want to preach that one. 
And I'll tell you why. It's because when I was nine years old, I was hurt by the church. My family was hurt by the church. And even though I can't go into all the details because it's not just my story, I will tell you this, I was confused when I was spending the night at a friend's house on a Saturday and the next morning woke up to find that my mom and dad had to come get me because that church said I wasn't allowed to be there. When I saw my sisters being excluded from their friend groups and ignored and to this day struggle with the church. But here I am 22 years later serving the church. Why? Because I came to realize that no one on this earth has been more wounded by the bride than the groom himself. And he still loves and he still sacrifices and he still forgives. You see, Jesus doesn't die for the church because it's made up of perfect people, but because he is so willing to pay the price to make her so. Because the only way we experience resurrection is to go through death. And because sometimes it is actually our greatest failures that pave the way for God's greatest glory. And that's what I wanna be a part of. I wanna be a part of that beautiful story that makes Jesus the reason we love the church, not its spiritual leaders, not the people inside of it. I will let you down. Mark will let you down. We will let you down because we are imperfect, which is why we should never gather because of the charisma of a minister, but because of the glorious love, the grace, and the person and work of our King Jesus. It is him and him alone that we gather in this place and we worship. And the reverse is true as well. Like, hear me. I don't mean this offensively, but you are not my audience today. He is. And I stand on this stage not to please you, but to please him. To declare the excellencies of the one who has called me out of darkness and into his wonderful light. To be, as one old preacher once said, simply one beggar telling other beggars, I know where the bread is. And that is why one of the greatest compliments you can give me or any preacher is not what a great sermon, it is what a great God. Then I will know. You have seen what I have seen. You have tasted what I have tasted. And church, we will become that work in progress worth all the blood and the sweat and the tears because our hope was never in the righteousness in the people in this room. It was in the righteousness of the God that we serve and praise. This is the hope that we seek. Let's look at the church and its hope. Picks up in Galatians 2, 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Do you see the hope? He says, you are justified. You're a part of this community, not because of who you are, not because of your good works, not because you were religious, because you obeyed, because you were perfectly good, but because we believe in the one who is, who has done all of those things it is only in believing and trusting in Jesus that makes us right with God. And this is true for the church as well. Like I know it is cheesy, but it is true. This place is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. And the hope of the church is not based off of its own goodness. It is based securely and truly, exclusively on Jesus. He is the one that makes us beautiful, not our works. They'll simply never do it. 
And because of that fact, every person from every walk of life is welcome in this place when we have faith in King Jesus. This is what Paul says in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 7. Listen, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And let me boil this down. He's saying the reason we can sing Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham, it's not because we belong to Judaism, it's because we belong to Jesus. It has radically changed everything for us. He is our hope. When we were dead to sin, lawbreakers, isolated from each other and from God, Jesus became sin so we could become a son. He became a criminal so we could receive his status as called. And this is how the church becomes the people of God, the family he has adopted, the bride that God loves, the community he has called. You should not be surprised that people within the church could stumble or fail or make a mistake. It's not surprising when someone sins. It's surprising when it is met by grace, forgiveness, This is what Peter and everyone else would ultimately experience. The church did not fracture at this event. It was strengthened. And what we come to find is that Peter, through church history, would actually die for this message, for this faith, for these people, this church, Jew and Gentile alike, because the church is not made up of perfect people, but it is made up of forgiving people. And Peter had experienced this before, hadn't he? Was this not the man who denied Jesus three times, who failed miserably before the man who had, who had showed him the most love he could ever deserve or not deserve, actually? And yet, wasn't this also the man who, after his greatest failure, Jesus comes to him and he says, feed my sheep. You see, Jesus wants to heal and redeem And he will not apologize that his bride is made up of imperfect and broken people. That's who he came for. That's who we are. And if you've been hurt by the church, the greatest way you can transform it, it's not to boycott it, it's to forgive. It's to get involved. It's to step into the mess that beauty is created from ashes. And so we go back to the question, do I really need to be associated with the church? Do I really need to be a part of this thing that has hurt me? But you see, the real question is, when we get our eyes on the groom, is how could I ever be associated with a groom like that, with a God like that? And Ephesians 5 tells us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church has always been a work in progress. So be a part of the progress. Because one of the greatest ways the church can reach the world is not by being perfect, but by showing them what sorts of mercy we are capable of when we are not. You see, today, you didn't come to church. You brought the church into the room. You brought, you brought the bride before its groom. You are the holy nation, that royal priesthood. You are the temple where he dwells, his special possession, and his bride. Beautifully dressed. And every single time we come to worship him, 
He irons out the wrinkles. He washes away the spots. And he delights in us. And what he's asking you to be a part of is a community of people who recognize their imperfections but long to delight in him. Will you do that? I hope you will. So would you stand with me as we all respond, not as individuals, but as his corporate gathering, this corporate body singing with one voice, a prayer of repentance and a prayer of hope. Let's sing. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.